the, the title to the service that some of you may have noticed at the top there says Doubting Thomas. Um, there is, however, a question mark omitted from after the Thomas, um, which I'd like to put back in there. So just imagine it, that it's there. Um, the story of Thomas is a, is a favorite one. And I, I suppose um, it's one of the most famous stories, in fact, uh, within the Bible. It's not just a story, of course, about Thomas. It's a story about uh, the frightened disciples who were so scared they, they locked themselves uh, away. And who can blame them? They, uh, they just witnessed the one whom they confessed to be the Messiah being betrayed by one of his own, convicted by religious and civil authorities, and they knew that he was innocent, not just innocent, but he was, a, he was an extraordinary human being. And he was put to death. Little wonder they were afraid, assuming that maybe the next step would be to round up Jesus' followers. But when Jesus comes on the scene, their fears fall away and it's, it's, it's replaced with joy. And this, I think, is the way that most of us believe faith should work. Perhaps you've got doubts and questions and fears, but then God arrives and those all fall away and it's, they're replaced by joy and replaced by wonder and unshakable faith. And for some of you, that is true. And praise God for that. Because if you have a faith like that, that is a wonderful, wonderful, sturdy foundation for yourself, but also for other people. But that's not the way it works with Thomas. He, well, we'll call it doubt for the time being. He questions, he, di he, he disbelieves. He's not satisfied with second-hand reports. And as I suggested to the children, as I reflect on this, to be honest, now correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, please feel free, by the way, to disagree with me afterwards. I'm not uh, five feet above contradiction at all. I don't blame him. These people come back and say, we've seen the Lord. And maybe he believed, as some people still believe today, that, well, they were just hallucinating. They just hoped that Jesus would come back. They'd been so disappointed by his death. They were maybe damaged in some way, and they just dreamt that they saw him again. Who knows what he believed? But I don't blame him. He was after all, one of those who saw his Lord, who saw his friend mistreated, he was beaten and crucified. He spent the last few days probably putting the, 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 the pieces of his life back together again and trying to figure out what he's going to do next. Because for him, Jesus is dead. And he'd given up three years of his life to follow this man. He might, in fact, have already started to get on with his life. Perhaps that's why he wasn't with the other disciples. We don't know. But I want to contend that Thomas is not so much a doubter, but a realist. He's asking real questions. And to be honest, I don't think there's anything odd about someone who refuses to believe that someone who was dead is now alive again. 
And everything we know about Thomas up to this point suggests that he's forthright, that he's genuine, and even that he's courageous. Way back in chapter 11, Thomas was the one who wanted to go with Jesus and, and raise Lazarus, even though he thought it might spell their deaths. You'll find that in John 11, verse 16. Even though that might end in his death, he wanted to be there with Jesus. And in chapter 14, Thomas doesn't understand Jesus' metaphorical speech about the place he's going to. Thomas calls him, calls his out, as it, calls him out as it were. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How then can we know the way? He's wanting to know. He's there with him. He's, at heart, this man is a pragmatist. He believes in things that you can touch and feel and see. One who likes his truth straight up, as it were, and who takes stock of the situation before making a situation, before making a decision. You can, you can count on Thomas, but you better not, better not be false with him. Because Thomas, I think, is one of these people that, that, that doesn't suffer fools gladly. It may be take him a long time to make a decision, but when he makes it, he sticks to it. And he's loyal. Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when they were cowering in fear in that upper room. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was getting on with his life. Maybe he'd got back to work. We're not sure. But then reality hit him. And the other disciples were struck also like they had never before. Because the reality that Thomas is dealing with at the moment is the reality of Jesus' death. It's where he's at. It was just the, the, the passage in John 20 begins on, on, on Easter day, as it were, on the resurrection day. And Thomas had watched his Lord being nailed to that cross. And he was dead. And his hopes, his dreams had gone. That's where Thomas was at. You can understand that. So when the disciples come saying to them they'd seen Jesus, Thomas doesn't just doubt them. It's far more than doubt in many ways. He's not like, hmm, maybe I'm not too sure about that. That's not what he's saying. He's plain saying, I don't believe you. That's not doubt. That's disbelief. I don't believe you. And I suspect that his demand to see and feel the mark of the nails in Jesus' hands is less a request for, for, for proof than, than it is actually mocking his disciples. But come on, I'm not going to believe that. Who do you think I am? As you say in Glasgow, I didn't come up the Clyde in a banana boat. Yeah. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And he makes the demand because he knows it will never happen. Come on. It's a request as absurd as what his friends are claiming. Oh, yeah, right. That's what he's saying. And the reason this matters, this distinction between doubt and, and unbelief, is that Thomas is changed when he is confronted by the risen Lord. Not that he's no longer a doubter. I don't think he ever really was. Certainly not his realism. You know, the translations are difficult with these things. What changes is his perception of reality itself. 
And that's why this matters far more to us than it matters just for those of us who doubt, who are unsure. It matters far more than that because what changes in Thomas is his realization that reality is different from what he had thought it was. His whole perception of life has changed. Jesus comes, he takes his, as it were, mocking words and turns them back on him, not to humiliate him, not to to scold him, but to confront him with the possibility that his reality was too small. I like that. And I think, I can't remember who wrote the book, Your God is Too Small. I think it was J.B. Phillips. Somebody will correct me about that. The wonderful book, Your God is Too Small. His reality, Thomas is realizing, is too weird, it's too restricted. And when Jesus calls him to faith, to trust in him, he's calling him to enter into a whole new world to be born again. And this issue of having too small a vision of reality is very interesting because I also fall into a worldview that is governed by limitations and I'm tempted to call that realism. Which is when I need personally the community of faith to remind me of that grander vision. A vision that's defined not by failure, but by possibility. Not by scarcity, but by abundance. And it's not ruled by by offenses that are remembered, but set free by forgiveness, by reconciliation. It's a new world. And if we're called to be born again, as we are, we're called to be born again into a new kind of life, into a new kind of reality. And that's what Thomas, I want to contend, is about. Those of you who know a bit, as I know a little bit, about the the complex and arcane world of, of, of quantum physics will know that the world as we know it is definitely not as it is. Things are very far from solid. Solidity, even the solidest rock, is not solid. There are probably 10 or 11 dimensions, not just three or four. Time itself is extremely strange. All sorts of things, all sorts of events change as we observe them. And the invitation to faith doesn't require us to understand quantum physics, but it requires us to accept what quantum physics tells us, which is that there are other ways of seeing the world. There are other ways of perceiving reality. And part of what it means to be a Christian is to have our view of the world challenged with the possibility of something far more, of something far better. It's not about telling people off. It's not about scolding people. Life is real. Life is hard. And sometimes life is so impossibly hard, we feel like giving up. And if our vision shrinks, if our faith diminishes under the burden of that heart, nobody's blaming us, least of all God. 
and we're bombarded 24-7 with headlines about what's wrong with the world. These things harden us, and it may harden us against the gospel, against faith, if we allow it to. But we're called day by day to try to not let go of that vision of another reality, another world, another possibility, another life. Some 15 years or so ago, I went to Rwanda for the first time. And one of my questions was, how can you believe in God when you've seen the horrors of the genocide? Across the road from the school in Yagasambu, there's a lake. And you could walk across that lake with dead bodies in it. How can you believe when, in God when you've seen that? When you've seen what human beings can do to each other? How can you believe? But yet, the, 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 the Protestant church anyway is booming. New denominations are springing up all over the place. And people like, like our friend Bishop Joe Mkaza are deeply involved in the process of reconciliation and forgiveness and renewal. How can you believe in God? Well, the response people often have is you were just clinging to a log, really, like a drowning man. You, you're just hoping for pie in the sky when you die, just wishful thinking to take you away from the horrors of this life. But that's not so. The truth is that faith works. And if you respond to that invitation to trust as Thomas did and declared, my Lord, my God, if you respond in that way, impossible things start happening. Like Rwanda. Like forgiving the people who killed your family. I sat next to a, a lady. She drove us along a road through the village where her family had lived. They'd all been wiped out. And she said to me, that's the man who murdered my uncle and my father. He's walking free along the road. I said, how can you forgive him? And her answer was, how can I not? And you know, the experience of that element of forgiveness that seems almost crazy is so humbling. So humbling when I, when I think of people whom I hold a grudge against or find hard to forgive. But that is the kind of new life, the kind of new faith, the kind of new thinking, new believing that we're called to through this encounter of Thomas with his Lord. When you break out of the evil reality of hatred and fear, you can start living in an alternative reality of love and hope and peace. Well, I suspect there are a good few Thomases here today. There always are. And I'm not inviting you to surrender your sense of realism, and I'm certainly not inviting you to stop thinking, to stop being reasonable but instead to see a whole new reality that God created when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You probably heard that the story of the child who in Sunday school was asked, what is faith? And she replied, well, it's believing what you know ain't true. 
<laughs> believing what you know. It worries me sometimes that some folk believe that to be a Christian, you need to switch your brain off. So you learn to mouth the creed and sing the hymns and maybe learn the Lord's Prayer off by heart and you do that whilst leaving probably both sides firmly off. No, 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 no. Thomas suggests otherwise. He comes to believe. He sees Jesus for himself. That experience, he not only assents and consents to the witness of his, of his comrades, but he makes this wonderful confession of faith. He's had a chance to voice his doubt. And sometimes faith is all the stronger for that. It needs the freedom of questions and doubt to really spring forth and take hold. And I've been in places, I've worked in a church where it was like not done to really ask serious questions or to dare to say, I don't believe that. You could even be ostracized by your neighbors. That's not healthy. And it doesn't help our faith, and it doesn't help the faith of our neighbors either. Vibrant, vigorous faith comes from the freedom to question, to wonder, to doubt. Not for everyone. Some people find faith comes far more easily. That's wonderful. I wish it had come that easily to me. Maybe many of the disciples were like that. Although, perhaps, just perhaps, they wanted to ask what Thomas asked, and maybe they didn't dare to. So maybe when Thomas said, can I put my finger in there, maybe they were thinking, oh, I wish I'd asked that. wish I'd done that. To tell the truth, I've no, ideas what, I've no idea what the disciples thought about Thomas's skepticism, let's call it that. Maybe they were scandalized. Maybe they wished they had dared to say what he did. But I think that if we don't have any doubts, we're not really being very serious. Think about what we confess when we come together in worship, that the creator of the vast, limitless cosmos not only knows that we exist, but deeply cares about each and every one of us passionately, and he wants to know us more and more. He wants us to know him more and more. He cares about our dreams. Imagine that. It's unbelievable, isn't it? And yet we come together, and in hearing the word and in sharing the sacraments, join to one, one another by through prayer and song, above all through the work of the Holy Spirit, we believe because we know those of us who believe we know that there is another world possible, and we are living in that world. Christian Aid, we're going to be hearing about in just a minute from, from Sia, had a wonderful slogan a few years ago, we believe in life before death. You remember that? We believe in life before death. We do believe in life before death, not just existence, but life, life in all its fullness. And that's what Thomas calls us to, life in all its fullness. So, since this is my last Sunday, I can, I can do all sorts of crazy things. Um, I know you've got your doubts. If you haven't, then you're, I don't believe you. <laughs> you've got your doubts. Write it down on a bit of paper. Something you, you just don't understand. 
or put it in a text to yourself. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do mosquitoes exist? If you live in the west of Scotland, why are there midges? Seriously, write it down. And then when your new minister comes, (laughs) when your new minister comes, send it to her or him. Because, you know, as, as a... As a minister myself, I know that knowing where people are at, knowing where their doubts are at, knowing where their uncertainties are at, is a very, very wonderful expression and measure of where people are at. Likewise, if you have no doubts at all, write that down too. Very interesting. And he or she will thank me. (laughs) Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for what faith has done for us. We thank you, Lord, that faith works. We thank you, Father God, for this world in which we live, for we don't just dream of pie in the sky when we die, but faith builds hospitals, faith builds bridges, faith brings forgiveness of people who murder one another. Faith performs amazing, wonderful things. Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Help us, Lord, to be honest, but also to be persistent and faithful. So strengthen us by the work of your Holy Spirit and transform us into the people you would want us to be. Through Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.